everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu, episode number 93. My name is Gabe Estel. I'm here with my co-host, Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going, guys? Fantabulous. All right. Rock and roll. Well, tonight we're going to take a trip back in time. Tonight is our field guide to 1988. So, it's 1988 and the revolution has begun. With debut albums from Soundgarden, Chains Addiction, The Pixies, NWA, Eazy-E, and Widespread Panic, rock is shedding its hairspray image, rap is getting ready to take over the mainstream, and the jam band scene is noodling its first notes. In MLB, a performance-enhanced revolution will introduce itself to America's pastime in the form of the Bash Brothers. The sluggers Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire will lead the Oakland A's to 104 wins and its first AL pennant since 1974. Their physiques reminded fans more of Ronnie Lott and those other football players across the Bay. But hey, they combined for 74 home runs, so it might be best not to ask too many questions. Ultimately, a hobbled Kirk Gibson will provide one of the most iconic World Series moments in history, and a lights-out Oral Hershiser will lead the Los Angeles Dodgers to their first championship in more than 20 years. And so, here we are, 30 years later. The Dodgers haven't won a championship since. Conseco and McGuire are considered the infamous godfathers of baseball's steroid era, and widespread panic has played chili water more than 1,100 times in their 30-plus years of touring. But since none of us was in line, none of us were in line to purchase Widespread's debut in 1988. You probably couldn't get it outside the state of Georgia. Let's start with what each of us was listening to at the time or shortly thereafter. All right. So jumping in, um, you know, for me, I was like, what was I listening to at the time? And it was basically, um, you know, in the introduction. We mentioned that you know rock was starting to shed some of its hairspray image. Um, I think I think that's true, uh, but at the same time, you know that that was still prevalent. You know, oh, yeah. it hadn't it hadn't it hadn't totally died out yet. It no, would take no, it, yeah. it would it would it would take a couple more years and basically, you know, never mind essentially to uh, to 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 really kind of. Um, Put put that stuff off into the sunset, which is you know as I've gotten older, uh, I've appreciated the Aquanet uh, era of rock a little bit more than I used to. I mean, what's what's wrong with having a good time, right? And that's exactly what I was trying to do in 1988 when I was nine years old. Um, I mean, for me, it would have been, you know, um, uh, I had Kiss, Smashes, Trashes, and Hits, which was like this combination that, that kids kiss put out it was basically like the greatest hits but they put a couple new songs on it as well uh which some bands are want to do um so that was you know kind of one of my first exposures to exposure to to 70s kiss because you know i i wasn't i wasn't old enough to to listen to them then so i had that um i also you know uh everything else that was on mtv at the time Poison, open up and say ah, which was you know big follow up to look what the cat dragged in. Cinderella, long cold winter, um, you know Bon Jovi's New Jersey, uh, which I think has bad medicine on it, right? I think. Um, so yeah, and then you know Reach for the Sky by Rat. Uh, that was all the stuff I was listening to. So you see a pattern there, but really you know I was 
I absorbed anything that was on MTV in heavy rotation. You know, I mean, I also, I, I also, I also like listened to like George Michael's Faith a lot that year as well. Was, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a number everywhere. one. Yeah, it was the number one single of the year too. You know, um, yeah. and uh, and a lot of the albums, some of the albums, I think from the previous year, you know, kind of trickled over and had singles. You know, I mean, we we were just before we started recording, we were talking about In Excess with Kick, which actually came out in 1987. But that, that album had so many singles on it that they were able to, you know, milk that for a couple of years almost. Um, and, and really for a brief period, kind of become one of the biggest bands in the world, you know, briefly. Um, so, yeah, Kick was huge. Uh, huge. But, yeah, 1987. But I'll, I'll kind of consider that a borderline 88 album with the success extending into the, to the next year. So, I mean, that's what I was listening to. I don't know about you guys, but. Yeah, you. Uh, I can go next. Um, when not being, you know, divulged with just the constant MTV. Yeah. Um, the, the the TV in the other room in my house was always on TNN, the Nashville Network. <laughs> and Listen, when I was, did you, find, did you watch a little of that? Remember that little Muppet that was always dirty, Shotgun Red. But... Shotgun Red. <laughs> <laughs> he always looks like. like I, I don't. I don't know if there's like a Muppet laundromat, but he never went to I, it. Like they were like, man, Ralph Embry is getting kind of old and like needs some kind of a sidekick to lighten it up a little or something. But like, you can tell there's some of those skits where like Ralph Embry's like, oh Jesus Christ, publish up my You can tell like in, in between takes, he's probably like sipping from a flask and stuff. Like, it's like, what has my life become? I used to. <laughs> That's awesome. I, you know, but yeah, who knows? That, that, that's rant. my conspiracy. Oh shit. Well, there's there's YouTube for me tonight. Uh, <laughs> get out of shotgun red rabbit hole. Don't send help. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to touch on some of the country music that I heard that year that I ended up still like liking a lot and listening to today. Yeah. I'm going to touch on three guys. Uh, the first is Keith Whitley. 1988 was the year his album Don't Close Your Eyes came out. And... Um, uh-huh. It was basically the album that made him huge and uh, contained three of his biggest songs, the title song, of course, and then uh, his song, I'm No Stranger to the Rain, and his other big hit, When You Say Nothing at All. And so those songs were like in constant rotation on the videos and the radio, because when I wasn't at home, I was in a car, and the car was always on country radio as well. Same here. And so uh, the next guy who I always liked and um, it was one of those times when it was like kind of the light bulb went off that like you didn't have to be like young and beautiful to like make music and get famous. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but it was a guy named Vern Gosden who like looked older oh, yeah. than anyone's grandfather probably. Oh, but yeah. like the guy has a voice. And I think that was actually might have been his one of his nicknames was The Voice. And um. Uh, he and his brother had had an, a career in like the 60s and 70s singing. And uh, like in 1988, he was like in this resurgence of his career. Uh-huh. And uh, one of his biggest hits was a song called Set Him Up Joe. And it was on the radio all the time. I, I, I can remember the words to it because I heard it so many times as a kid. It's one of those songs. And then the last artist is uh, a guy named Rodney Crowell, who we talked about uh-huh. on the show. 
1988, his album Diamonds and Dirt came out, and it was uh, one of his most popular records, and had a duet with him and his wife uh, at the time, Roseanne Cash. They were married. Oh yeah. Like they were married from like '79 to '91 or two or something like that, and then um, his uh, other couple hits off of it were "I Couldn't Leave You If I Tried" and "She's Crazy for Leaving," which are kind of like tongue in cheek lyrically and uh but like really fun upbeat music wise and he oh, was yeah. these guys that could like kind of write like a sad melancholy story but set it to like like upbeat music and it just always kind of worked and it was funny and you know and witty he's a songwriter first and foremost yeah, yeah he, exactly. he, he wrote he wrote a ton of songs for other and people. that's just it in 1988 i'm hearing these songs on the radio as singles from this new to me country artist i had no idea of like his outlaw past at the time or anything like that being mm-hmm. around in the late 70s hanging around in that whole heartworn highway scene and uh yeah so my my 1988 consisted of a lot of mainstream country radio and videos keith willie's great man i mean at the at the time like i hated that stuff because it was what my mom listened to and like i had to hear it in the car you know and i was yeah. I was so into, you know, Poison and Def Leppard and, and uh, you know, a lot of the bands I just mentioned a moment ago that I, I was very dismissive of country music at the time. And, uh, you know, Levi pointed out, I think, some of the some of the good stuff that 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 made it through. I mean, a, a lot of the country of that era was starting to get pretty slick, you oh, know, yeah. in terms in terms of production, you know, yeah. it was. You know, um, and then just the gates were wide open, I think, once Garth Brooks came on the scene a couple of years later. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the folks that you just mentioned, uh, those are great. And uh, I, I love Keith Whitley now. I mean, he's he's uh, such a, you know, he's got that bluegrass past as well, you know, and some of that would carry over into his his, his mainstream country stuff as well. So that's that's one of the country artists that uh, you know, my mom would listen to him growing up. She had the cassettes that you mentioned the album that came out in 88 and you know i just kind of shrugged it off but i heard it again i don't know probably about 15 years ago or so when i started kind of getting kind of went through a sort of rediscovering country phase and uh he's 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 one he's he's my favorite country artist to like emerge in the 80s definitely yeah yeah so jonathan how about you I was pretty, I was a pretty passive, uh, listener at the time. Uh, you know, I didn't own anything except for maybe a white snake cassette. Uh, and that was from the previous year, but still right. big in eight, still big right. in 88. Right. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, it was the only cassette I think I owned. Uh, I was beholden to MTV and, um, actually just rewatched, uh, the video for the first time. My first crush, Tiffany. Uh, nice. I think we're alone yeah. now. Yes. Yeah. Watch, watch she was it. Film that was, it was the one where everybody's crazy in the mall. Exactly. They should have did like a like a sweetheart of the rodeo, but like sweetheart of the mall, like shot of her. <laughs> like maybe we could make some t-shirts and sell. That would them. be awesome. I like it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So between that and uh, Def Leppard's Hysteria, that that was dominating the chart. That was starting to dominate the charts there, and even though it was also released in '87. Yeah. Well, um, you know, on the, on that note, I mean. You know, we talked about a few albums that, you know, carried over into the next year. 
It's just totally different era. You know, I mean, it was so important to have hit singles back then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, Hysteria had like seven singles, you know. The White Snake album had like four, three or four. In Excess Kick probably had a half a dozen singles. So, you know, you could really, if you, if you, if you found success back then, you know, on the charts and you were able to, you know, release multiple singles, hit singles from an album, I mean, you could, you could get strong album sales for, for two yeah. years on one milk, record. Sometimes longer, you know, I mean, it, yeah, you could really milk it. And uh, it's too bad because now, you know, not to say there aren't good albums out now, but it's just, it's not like that anymore, you know? No, no, I, I would assume that 90% of album sales will come in those first two weeks. Yeah, uh, right. Just guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but no, yeah. It's all right. uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Because uh, I think a lot of these albums that dominated the charts in 88 were released in 87. Yeah. Um, if not sooner. Um, but, uh, you know, the the one that's uh, probably the best taste of music I had at the time was thanks to my brother, Sean. He he had uh, Living Colors Vivid. Uh, and yeah. uh, that rocked. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that, 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 album, yeah, that was legit. That album still holds up today, man. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, it does. Yeah. yeah. And Excellent. I was I was reading up on him, and I didn't realize... Vernon Reed, the founding member, guitarist, uh, he was previously working in the in the jazz scene in New York uh, with like Bill Frizzell, and he was also working oh. with Public Enemy. And nice. um, but it was Mick Jagger who produced yeah. uh, Living Colors demo and then helped produ- co-produce Vivid. Yeah, um, and then Cult of Personality, uh, the video got heavy rotation on MTV, and that's when the album took off and peaked at number six on the Billboard. And uh, then they got an opening gig for the Stones on the Steel Wheels tour with GNR. Yeah, with GNR. Fuck, man, that would have been awesome. That's intense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was probably my first legit uh, taste of music. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, throughout the '90s, and we can kind of segue into that is is getting you know getting into Anthrax, a state of euphoria, understanding yeah. understanding who the Traveling Wilburys were, uh, and and then getting into Soundgarden and Jane's Addiction, uh, and uh, all of those would would end up being you know pretty uh, pretty solid records in, in the collection for for the next couple decades. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm going to touch on. Uh, the the Wilburys for one of my kind of main album uh, reviews. I say go do. for it. Yeah, well, it, it was such a crazy story. I don't know if you guys both know of how it actually all came about. George Harrison was in L.A. and he needs a B-side for this 12-inch European single that he's releasing. He calls up Jeff Lynn and he's like, oh, I want to go out to eat. And Jeff Lynne's like, okay, I have Roy Orbison with me. I'm producing this record of his called Mystery Girl, which would be released posthumously after Roy unfortunately passed away in late 1988. And so he's like, okay, you know, and so George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, and Roy Orbison are all eating dinner. And um, he describes he's in this predicament, like he's got to come up with this B side, and they're like, "Okay, we'll help." And he's like, "Well, we don't have a studio." And George Harrison's like, "Well, I could call Bob Dylan." So they call Bob Dylan, and they're like, "Hey, can we record at your house?" And he's like, "Okay, that's fine." Well, on the way to Bob Dylan's house, George Harrison realizes he needs a guitar, so he goes to Tom Petty's house <laughs> to borrow a guitar. 
and tells Tom Petty what's happening. And of course, Tom Petty's like, well, of course I'm coming. <laughs> and so that is how the traveling Wilburys were born. <laughs> and it, at the beginning of it, it was kind of like Bob Dylan was like master of ceremonies. It was like his house, his studio. He like threw a barbecue while they were like kind of getting it going. It all started with the single Handle With Care. That's the song that they kind of started the band on. Mm. And um, yeah, the rest is history. You know, they they recorded enough tunes basically to kind of, they released an album, their first there in 1988 called Volume One. And later they had an album called Volume Three. I mm. don't ever think there was a Volume Two. And they never, they never toured, right? I don't believe so. I don't think so. Uh, or, Orbis be, died yeah. in late 88. Right, right. And so, yeah, it was uh, just kind of crazy, I think, how that all worked out. You know, and it turned into maybe, in my opinion, it could have been like the most natural supergroup. Like maybe one of the most, like, one of the most egos were checked at the door supergroups of all time, probably. Yeah. It's yeah. like just on the surface, it seems like. You know what I mean? Because sometimes... Sometimes you know supergroups just don't just don't work. You know what I mean? Sure. It doesn't happen. And um, but this was like pretty amazing, and it was crazy how it all came together. And so yeah, that volume one had a couple of the singles were the handle with care, and then the end of the line. And uh, it was just a fantastic record, and it was produced awesome. And you know, it's it's one of those records that should be in pretty much everyone's. CD or digital collection or vinyl, whatever format you are into. Right. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's great. Um, and like, it's hard to think like, I guess Petty would have been probably about 10, 15 years younger than everybody yeah, else. Yeah, right? Kid, mm-hmm. the kid of the group, right? Maybe not, maybe not 15 years younger, but it, you know, everybody else had, had a, probably a good 10 years on him, I would assume mm-hmm. or close to it. Yeah. 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 yeah he was kind and, of the, the aw shucks kid in the group yeah and, and he he was a veteran at that point too i mean oh uh, yeah he'd been in for 13 years or something yeah, yeah right so yeah, yeah. yeah. sold a shit ton of records yeah it's it's, 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 it's funny to watch uh the the george george harrison documentary and also watch the tom petty documentary you know running down a dream and to get all of the different angles of the formation of the traveling wilburys it's it's funny when they get to that point and you really they do uh de- devote the attention it deserves hmm. Yeah, see, a monumental. You know, I mean, at, at the time, uh, I didn't know how big it, how how the, the the meeting of all of those minds and talents, how much that meant. You know, um, until like you know, maybe I was a teenager and I, I got into all those artists a little bit more. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. at the time, at the time, it was kind of just another tune on MTV. You know, for yeah, me. I mean. I, a, a couple other tunes I was going to mention that were just on constant MTV rotation that. I can still listen today and I won't change on the radio or whatever. Or of course Bobby Brown's my prerogative. Well hell yeah. That's a big fan. everywhere yeah. in nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that that's a classic. And then maybe my this could okay, this will probably be my eighty eight guilty pleasure. It's Roxette's the look. For some reason I, I don't like that. I love that song and I love the production <laughs> of it and I love the guitar tones and I love like the like I don't know, just the hell and like a bomb, it's just really no matter what. Like, I just love that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. 
They're, they're, I hear you, man. Yeah, they're always like I, I, Roxette. The two the two folks in Roxette, the guy and the girl, they're always they always got good like back to back. You know, they're like, and, and, you know, she'll be on the other side, he'll be on this side. Yeah, yeah man, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going on joyride with those two. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, well, I, I I was looking at like you know the Hot 100 singles of 1988, and some of my I, I there's a couple on there I don't remember at all, like. Uh, Hands to Heaven by a band called Breathe. Do you guys remember that? Got nothing. Yeah. They were they're an English pop band. Um Wow. I and I I don't know. That was like the eighth, ninth biggest single of the year. And all the others I recognize, but that one that one escapes me at the moment. Yeah. Um and hell man, I don't know, dude. All these all these songs are uh are, I'm looking at the singles list here and shit man they're all they're all classics you know i mean there's nothing wrong with any of this um well, and 88 was like the year of millie vanilli too right they would have been like on the boards then right i want to say i don't know if they, they were then or the next year oh okay okay maybe it might have come out that year uh yeah, i remember well, they were they were everywhere yeah it was yeah 88 yeah or hold on uh the first record um, what was the one? Girl, you know it's true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They came out with a single. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then all the cons- yeah, all or nothing. Um, yeah, it was oh. like all oh nothing. It yeah. Production. It's like all like studio guys and yeah. like girls. Girl, you know it's true. Came out the next year. Levi. Okay. And it was it was the American debut. All or nothing. All or nothing might have been released later in the states, but originally it was just overseas. Okay. So yeah, yeah. But um, well, you know, segue into the next. Like you know, it was I, I in 1988 to me. Um, and I mentioned this while we were planning kind of this episode that I was going to focus on it a lot. Um, you know, it was really the year as I mentioned in the intro that that hip hop really broke through. You know, to the mainstream. Um. And uh, well, I, I, let me let me let me walk that back for just a second. I think it's the year that like it's probably like one of hip hop hip hop's first like landmark years. I think hip hop like really broke to the mainstream. Like when "Please Hammer, Please Don't Hurt Him" came out a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. I mean, because like I mean that was when like like everybody in our hometowns like started getting into rap. You know? Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I would say in 88, it was still one of those things that I, at least I didn't hear a lot of people in Petersburg listening to rap in 1988. Um, and I, you know, that's when I kind of first, you know, Yo! TV Raps came out um, right around then, I think maybe or the year before. And it was really like the first time rap really kind of had a, sh- a spotlight shined on it. And, and sh- shine, shine it did because, you know, I was I was making a list of my favorite albums of that year, and nearly all of them are hip hop records. I mean, I, I think among genres of music, in terms of quality, it 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 had the strongest year by far. I mean, there's just so many good hip hop records um, that came out in 1988. I don't I mean I don't have time to cover them all tonight, but you know you've got you've got Straight Outta Compton, which is just you know just a, a classic and a one, I, not even one of the greatest rap albums of all time. One of the greatest albums of all time, in my opinion. 
Um, and then, you know, you've also got um, KRS, I'm sorry, uh, Boogie Down Productions by any means necessary. Ice T Power, uh, Long Live the Cane by Big Daddy Kane, I think is outstanding. Um, and, and there's there's more as well. You know, Strictly Business by EPMD, uh, The Adventures of Slick Rick. I, I mean, it's just, you know, there's, there's probably about at least 12 to 15 classic, you know, iconic rap albums that came out that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, it was, it was really, I don't know, such an exciting time for the genre because, you know, so much had nothing, like they hadn't really even scratched the surface of what it could do. Um, and speaking of scratching, you know, I was, I was listening to all those records and I listened to newer hip hop um, you know, the DJs just aren't prevalent in new hip hop like they used to be, you know, 30 years ago, that was an art form, you know, to scratch. Um, and, and it was, it was, you know, you would always hear the MC give props to his DJ and, you know, it was, it was, it was just a really important element of it. Um, and, uh, you don't, you know, I, I think that's missing from new rap. It's not to say new rappers don't have DJs, but. You know, it's more like guy on it, like you know, yeah, a, Mac, yeah. a, a guy on a MacBook or something. You know, I mean, well, and yeah. I mean, it, it was it was sold to us as that thrilled to be like DJ Jazzy yep. Jeff and Fresh yep. Prince, and, yeah, you know, yeah, Eric B and Rakeem and all all the different people who were together. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it was if you didn't shout out your DJ, it was like you were an asshole. Yeah, right, right. right. Yeah, Spinderella from Salt and Pepper. I mean, yeah. it was. Uh, there's just a legion of good DJs on all those records that I just mentioned, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Dr. Dre for NWA was, you know, a DJ and a, uh, and an MC, um, you know, doing double duty. So uh, there's, you know, you, you've got kind of the politically charged albums of that year, like like Straight Outta Compton um, and, 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 K- and uh, I keep saying KRS-One, but it's technically Boogie Down Productions, uh, by, all means nece- by any means necessary. Um, Public Enemies, um, it's, uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back came out that year, which is, you know, probably their, I don't know if it's their, their most famous record, but it's, it's probably, you know, it's certainly their most groundbreaking. It's their debut, um, their debut LP, at least, I think. And uh, so, yeah, you know, it, it had a, a political urgency to it as well, you know, um, that, uh, that, you know, sometimes... Um, is missing in some of the rap of, of the next decade of the nineties. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's all those albums I just mentioned are just, you know, hip hop masterpieces. Yeah. yeah. I had a lot so. of fun listening to uh, many of these albums for the very first time uh, this okay. past week. Uh, the EPMD yeah. was tons of fun. Uh, yeah. I've been doing the Steve Martin all week long. <laughs> and, uh, um, and NWA, I, I remember in middle school, so I would have been, pro- this is probably been 91, I remember a, a schoolmate getting the NWA cassette, and he, uh-huh. he, he brought it to school, and you could see it. Yeah. Right? And so that's, I guess that would tell you, it took three years for it to get to, um, to, to, to get to Petersburg, probably, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that sounds about right, actually, three years, you know. <laughs> Um, and then I was looking at the the Billboard charts because I was curious when 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 rap and hip hop albums would start to dominate. And while a few made it, you know, would it would would reach number one uh, in the subsequent years, 
it wasn't really until about a decade later, 1998, when hip hop dominated the charts. Yeah. Right, um, right. Where the majority of albums, the majority of number one albums throughout the year were hip hop albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, I thought that was interesting. It took that long because I didn't think it did take that long. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I never I never really thought about chart success and all those albums that I just mentioned. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about like what was I'm trying to think of like what would have been the first hip hop song that I remember. And it would have been, it came out that year, actually. It's Cool Modi's Wild Wild West. That is the first rap song I remember hearing. Um, and, and that was at least the first one I remember. But it, it would have been on TV Raps, you know, like when the video came out. And he had those badass wraparound kind of sunglasses as well. I don't know, just maybe, maybe they're, I don't know if they're not, maybe they're not wraparound. But if you just Google image it and he comes up and he, he's, he's a badass. Um but, you know, some of those records that I just mentioned, I didn't really get in until later either, Jonathan. I mean, I straight out of Compton, I heard it a couple years later um, from actually a mutual friend. Jimmy Reddy was the first person to play it for me, and it blew my fucking mind. Um, like, I mean, I just wasn't I don't know if I was ready for that. You know, I mean, I heard it and um I think at the time I was more drawn to it was perverted. You know what I mean? I mean, it was at times. Um, so you're kind of drawn to that and you're like, you know, he, you know, you giggle over it. Um, uh, but then, you know, it took me a few years later before I realized how, um, how strong it was politically, you know, the album uh, and, and, you know, just as, just as powerful and, and as relevant today as it, you know, as it was 30, 30 years ago now. And you, you could say the same thing about Texanation of Millions as well. Um, but Cool Modi and Big Daddy Kane, um, which is uh, he, his big single off that album, Long Live the Kane, I think was, um, oh, it's the Half Steppin. Um, ah, shit, what is it? Uh, oh, oh, hold on. Oh, yeah. Ain't No Half Steppin'. That was like his sort of big single from from that year, and um, it those those were like the first two rappers I remember that I connected with were Big Daddy Kane and Cool Mo D, um, and then you know the other stuff that I mentioned, Public Enemy N.W.A. A couple of years later, and then I didn't I didn't appreciate Eric B. and Rakim until about 1992 when the Juice soundtrack came up, which we talked about in the previous episodes phenomenal soundtrack um but my my favorite lp of that year if i had to pick one would be straight out of compton um and then i i think a close second would be eric b and rockham's follow the leader um you know obviously this is an arguable statement i, I don't like to sort of throw things out there but like in terms of mcs i, I don't think many people can touch rockham I mean, the dude is, that's, that's the Bob Dylan of rap for me, you know, so, yeah. Right on. Rock, rock, him, rock him's the shit. You're very demonstrative. I can hear you slamming your hands on Yes, on the yes. I, I, I mean it. Sorry. Yeah. Dropping, dropping knowledge bombs on me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got to throw this in because it's a perfect time. The wild, wild west is a very, very large place. So large that the... <laughs> 
1988 called the Escape Club, and they're also <laughs> probably one of my oh, shit. 88 pleasures, man. Uh, <laughs> like if you, I don't know, man. If you think about it, like the Escape Club, if you listen to that song and then some of the other songs, they're almost like I don't know. And I mean this in the nicest way. They're like cult light, and yeah. uh, and, and you know, just like you're talking about like the like the like Ian Astbury, the cult, like yeah, that yeah, cult? yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. all right, oh, and okay. So like. I remember the video so vividly as a child because yeah. the video for the song has these like mirrored legs and hands with no bodies or like oh, right, heads. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're like, ah, blah. And like, as a kid, that like for some reason stuck with me. And so, uh, like going back today, I, I have found the record, you know, at thrifts or whatnot, and I own a copy. And um, I can say, you know, it's like, it's produced pretty well and you know it's got you know great 80s style you know production and um one of their like weird claims to fame is they're one of the only bands to have a number one in the usa a number one hit and it not chart at all in the uk and they're a british band yeah wow huh pretty great so yeah, that's uh. I wanted to throw that in there, tie it into your Wild Wild West. Nice. If there's a cover band out there that can do Wild Wild West, Arrow <laughs> Wild Wild West. <laughs> I want them to play my buckets. But and then we, did we, Will we, Smith we, do a version for... for uh... yeah. well, speaking of him, I mean, you know... Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I made a, made a crappy movie out of it, too. Um, but... I, I, you know, I mentioned Big Daddy Kane and uh, and Cool Mo D because they're, you know, quite frankly, a little edgier. Well, Big Daddy Kane at least uh, than than Will Smith. But you know, yeah, DJ Jesse Jess and the Fresh Prince. I mean, uh, was it Parents Don't Understand would have come out that year, right? I mean, I think the album was called like He's the Rapper, I'm the DJ, or vice versa, something like that. Um, but but you know, that's uh, that that's another one um, that is. Uh, yeah, that was early exposure to rap as well. Sure, yeah. I, I bet yeah. that was the introduction for a lot of people already. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it came out in February of 88. Yeah. February of 88, yeah. Um, yeah, you had, uh, what, Parents Don't Understand, and, um, you know, the video for that was so, like, gloriously low budget as well. <laughs> Very memorable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's important, man. Yeah. Um, it's uh you know it's hard to believe you know it's it's 30 years ago yeah uh he's and he's he's still got a youthfulness to him will smith does so for sure yeah Yeah. 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 nice yeah levi i um i listened to the entirety of of the escape club album today and immediately betsy offered to come in and recreate the video so that (laughs) stuck with her as well (laughs) turn to the left turn to the right yeah 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 I don't care as long as she comes tonight. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's so mean. Yeah. 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 No, it is a solidly cool. produced record, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, another really slick record that I I can go back and listen to today and appreciate, and I at one time, you know, probably wouldn't have, is, is Winger. In 1988, Kip Winger started his band of his own name, and... um. The self-titled record is full of, like we said, slick 80s production. And um, 
One of the things, though, I think is that you can listen to the songs on that record and you you gain that there's like more to them musically than a lot of 80s bands. Like, I'm not going to say they were like progressive, like yes or anything, but like, yeah. but like they were like kind of progressive for an 80s hair band. And um, it, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was sort of like um like a little bit more of an Aquanet Queensryche at times, you know what right. I mean? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And um, just, uh, you know, the two big singles off of it were, of course, She's Only 17, which is a song about underage illegal love. <laughs> right. And, uh, they, weren't, they, weren't the, they weren't the first ones to sing about it. No. So. You don't hear a lot of those songs anymore. I'm wondering, was 17 maybe one of the last major pedophile hits? <laughs> 17 in parentheses, like... but it was legal in our state. <laughs> yeah, right. There, there are certain states where that's right. acceptable. Okay, okay, so. okay. Yeah. Um, and then their big ballad, Headed for a Heartbreak, was big. And um, that song, Headed for a Heartbreak, I'll never forget the video. He's obviously spent hours in the chair because his hair is looking awesome with the aquanet. Yeah. And he's got like the most perfect looking and like I don't know if it's like old Hollywood tricks where it's like glue and coffee grounds. Oh yeah. But the dude has the most perfect five o'clock shadow. Yeah, like, it's like better than like remember Rick Fox, the NBA player always had a great five o'clock yeah. shadow. It's right up it's like Rick's yeah. Rick Fox good. Yeah, yeah. 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 That was always one thing I remember from that. that Listen, movie. he's a good-looking son of a bitch, Kip Winger. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, he, he is. Yeah. yeah. Red, Red Beach on guitar. The uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the songs off that album was Purple Haze. They covered it. And what's that, that's kind of different. You didn't hear a lot of, like, 80s hair bands covered, yeah, like... Do you know who played the, the guitar solo on that version of Purple Haze, Levi? In the, in the left channel, you'll hear nothing but Dweezil Zappa. Wow. No, got it. Yeah. Oh, wow. that's, that's, when, that's when old Dweezil was a VJ on MTV. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Dweezil. And you can, that, like, when you so hear cool. it, you can definitely hear, like, left channel, right channel separation. So, yeah, next time you listen to it, Jonathan, it's... Dweezil Zappa playing in the left channel. I, I have to confess, I, I did put on the winger today, but I, I didn't make it to <laughs> I tried, Levi. I, I tried. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things that I came to appreciate so much about it later was when I became a guitar player and was trying to get into like learning some of the 80s guitar riffs. The riff to 17 is a B, man, to learn and play correctly. And so, like, I always respected them for the fact that it was, like, I don't know, technically proficient and it sounded good and sold a lot of records. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize you know, that. Yeah. It, there was, you know, another thing about 1988, um, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a lot of bands that are, you know, critically acclaimed put out records that year. And... Um, one album that I would have heard back then that um, is is you know I, I mentioned NWA and and um, and and Eric B and Rakim, but right up in there in my in my top four on the the silver medal and gold stand would be would be Green by REM. Um, I know we're switching gears from Winger to REM, but uh, it was it was that a glory it was a glorious time. Yeah, um, and and you know that was. That was really REM's. I, I wouldn't say it was like their first video or anything, but they that that was certainly when they graduated to larger audiences. 
you know, they were kind of like you know, that label gets thrown around kind of college rock, you know, prior to uh, or college radio rock prior to prior to green. You know, they've been around for a few years, but um, a little bit uh, not as popular, certainly. But that, that, that made them, you know, that album essentially came close to making them superstars. They get it uh, a couple of years later with uh, a few years later without a time. But uh, but yeah, you know, Green uh, to me is just so rich musically. You know, it's got um, you know one of the best opening tracks in pop song '89, um, and then um, it goes. My only issue with Green, and it, it's I, I maybe would have moved some of the tracks around because to me, one of the most beautiful songs REM ever wrote was um, "You Are the Everything." It's got those really, it's like number three on green. It's got those really just like, really just beautiful kind of swirling mandolins in it. Um, and I'm not usually a fan of the mandolin in my rock, but um, Mike Mills playing it does the trick. And uh, then right after, so I'm like almost, you know, I'm almost, the other day I was listening to it in preparation for this episode. I was almost crying, you know, for You Are The Everything because it's such a beautiful song. And then right after it is Stand, which is like so like, Sounds you know, yeah. yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I guess I'm trying to get happy now, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, but I, I still love that record, and there's there's a few other, there, there's a lot of albums that, you know, people who probably had much better taste than nine-year-old me in 1988, <laughs> you know, like, like Morrissey came out with a record that year, My Bloody Valentine, uh, Jane's Addiction, Nothing Shocking. Oh, yeah. That you was know, definitely one I appreciated later. Yeah, same here. And and then for me, you know, as well, Sonic Youth, State Dream Nation. I I I at the time I wouldn't even know what it was, but I I listened to it as well, and it's it's good. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of like sort of I know to me they were kind of like the you know kind of like the Velvet Underground of the late '80s. You know, um, with yeah. you know the the female with Kim Gordon and and Thurston Moore. Um, but that was just stuff that you know just. A nine-year-old kid in Petersburg, you know, that's right, just not yeah. that's just not going to be on your radar. Any of that stuff, you know. Right? Yeah. I in the the last album that I was going to touch on that was in this category for me was um, John Hyatt's uh, album from 1988. It's called Slow Turning, and he was coming off his most popular record of his career, which was in 1987, called Bring the Family, and um, that album was huge and had one of his biggest hits, uh, Have a Little Faith in Me. And that album contained, like, his dream band. He said, like, he wanted to record with Ry Cooter, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner. Oh. And so they uh, they did. And they would later reform as a band called Little Village and release an album. And uh, so he couldn't get those guys together for this album in 1988 called Slow Turning. So he used his backup road like his road band at the time which was called the goners who happened to feature sonny landreth on guitar who is nice. an amazing guitar player and so um yeah it's just a great i don't even know like i mean i think it gets lumped into kind of like whatever that subgenre is like heartland rock the, the, you know it comprises the two johns john hyatt and mellencamp sure <laughs> like but um like, like as as today, I appreciate it as like it may be like one of the most perfect middle aged dad records. It's got <laughs> it's got like a great middle aged dad rock sound to it. 
So that's something I've uh, I've definitely eased into and, and liked since uh, since becoming John, old. John Hyatt's definitely a middle aged uh, NPR listening dad musician. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do live in Colorado, so man, it's rubbing off. I guess <laughs> there we go. There we go. So, like, where would, who would have played John Hyatt in 1988? I mean, like, was he on it? Because, like, he he wouldn't have been country enough, probably no, for TNN, right? Like, I'm not sure. You know, it would have been like college radio. Yeah, I guess it would have been college. Yeah, right. Like old, like some of the early alternative type country stations, guy, the people that were playing like the Dwight Yoakams and the, sure. the Lyle Lovitz and stuff of the day. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 good that that stuff found an audience. Uh, it's 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 deserving of a larger one. But yeah, well, I, 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 I can we talk about one record from from 1988 um, that was very much a transition album. For you know, one of the most important bands in the last now, gosh, thirty-five years. Jeez, um, Metallica's "Injustice for All" um, is uh, you know the first album with Jason Newstead, and uh, it's to me so much different than the than than their previous records with Cliff, um, but they really. But, but it's still great. You know, they didn't miss a beat. I mean, it's it's probably my favorite, still my favorite Metallica record, even though a lot of, you know, sort of old school diehard fans would kind of gasp at that. Um, it seems like, I don't know if you guys, like the, the old Metallica fans I know are definitely like, you know, it's kind of like the first three albums or nothing. Um, with, it, with that Justice for All kind of being like sort of dividing the community and then some people kind of writing off Black, the Black album, and it's, into, you know... Entirely. Um, but uh, and Justice for All is, uh, to me, you know, really Kirk Hammett's best moments in Metallica. He he is that. Uh, he's he's the anchor of that album. Uh, you know, the bass player. I don't even hell. It's weird because you like hardly even hear bass on that album. Oh, yeah. It's like one of the most turned down bass records of all time. Yeah. You know, whereas like previous Metallica records, you know, it's like they had like the metal Jaco Pastorius and Cliff Burton, you know, right? um, yeah. you know, it's this guy who could do all these like really crazy solos and things like that. Um, this is definitely, it's different. Um, uh, but it, it really worked for me. I mean, it uh, the, the, the title track is, is, is great. Uh, the whole, I mean, the whole album's great. That was, that was my, that was probably my first exposure and probably for the same for a lot of people to, to, to heavy metal, you know, I mean, the, the album, the, the bands that I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, they, they played those videos right before or after Injustice for All, but I, I wouldn't consider any of those bands metal. Um, I just, you know, when I heard Injustice for All, I think I was in third or fourth grade I just, I'd never heard anything that heavy, you know? I mean, I just, you know, like those two albums that came out that year that just hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, were Straight Outta Compton, you know, for its content, and then Injustice for All for just how pulverizing the music was. Um, I just, you know, nine years old, shit, that stuff blew my mind. You know, I, I didn't know you could play music that heavy. And then somebody's like, check out Slayer, and I'm like, ah, what? <laughs> 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 so, so yeah, um, but I, 
it's uh, it's got a special place for me and Justice for All. I had the cassette. Oh yeah, me too. I I wore out a cassette mowing yards for money mm-hmm. probably between the ages of like ten or eleven and twelve or fourteen. <laughs> so like yeah. In between, yeah, it was it was the most the most played cassette in the old Walkman. That was when like Metallica like was still like really metal in appearance too. Like every picture you saw them, they all they all oh, were yeah. black. Oh, yeah. They always, they they the always had sunglasses on. Yeah, they were like <laughs> the OG Heshers for sure, dude. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, right on yeah i um uh i don't have anything to add to that other than i just have a couple more uh albums i i I just uh discovered this week and um uh the first being uh from talk talk uh Mm. so it, it and and the other being from felt and these are two bands in the later parts of their careers and i listened to these albums completely out of context uh, as I was unfamiliar with their output beyond their hit singles, mainly Talk Talk's hit singles, um, before 1988. And, uh, but the Talk Talk, the, you know, British band, synth pop, they released five, five records between 82 and 91, and that was it. Um, but, uh, this album, um, uh, in particular, sorry, I just, uh, just went off the uh, title of the album, um, but uh, it, it's it's Spirit uh, of Eden. Spirit of Eden. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a big yeah. departure for him. And uh, yeah, like people who were really into the band, you would almost think it's like it was like a different band. It 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 was quite a departure. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I highly suggest it. It's it's a very atmospheric, pretty moody, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it's not a big pick me up album, uh, but, uh, it's sonically it's, they, they achieved quite a bit with that. Yeah. It was probably one of the most critically acclaimed records, but it didn't sell as well as the others. No, not at all. Like, yeah. I mean, it's my life was kind of hard to top for them as far as like sales and all that, that era and later Mm -hmm. they, uh, they were a great band. Um, I can't think of the leader, but he, uh. He released like one solo record in the late '90s, and then basically was just like, "I'm done with it. Like, I'm done with the music scene." Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark Hollis yeah. uh, was his name. The uh, British, right? Talk yeah. about British. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, and so and felt is also British, and um, uh, I listened to um, Felt's uh, the Pictorial Jackson Review is the name of the record, and they released about ten studio. They released um, 10 studio albums, EPs, LPs, uh, between 82 and 89, and that was it for them. And uh, bands like Bell and Sebastian and Manic Street Preachers would cite them as influences. Um, It's funny because the first sound of this album sounds like television backing Dylan on Blonde on Blonde. Um, (laughs) It's concise pop songs with these fantastic organ blasts. And uh, and a guy who sounds a lot like uh, uh, um, Lou Reed as well. Um, yeah. Alternatively, the second side consists of two keyboard instrumentals, <laughs> which is so strange. It's like yeah. so. I don't want to say off-putting, but like as like someone who was like into the band, you would have like flipped over the record and been like, "Is this the right? <laughs> did they press this wrong?" Like, yeah. Like, was this the <laughs> and but it, so it's um, the keyboardist uh, for Felt was Martin Duffy, and he would go on to be a staple member of Primal Scream uh, throughout the '90s and 2000s. Um, 
So, but Feld might be my new favorite band for the summer, and I'm I'm really looking forward to digging into their catalog, mainly prior to this album. Uh, such a strange band because the very next record they actually released without their founder, but they still went by Felt, and he like contributed to it in other ways. Like, he did the song titles for it. So strange, strange band. Yeah. Nice. Um. Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit to the Diamond folks. Um. Let's go ahead and uh, talk, uh, discuss a really important year for baseball in 1988. I could probably, I probably speak for all of us. That was definitely, probably the apex of me collecting baseball cards. You know, like I was, I was felt like I was going really strong in '88. You know, wax boxes, all that. You know what I mean? It was all, it was all out there. Um, and uh, even though Tops had a pretty weak set that year, they did. Yeah, it's probably like the weakest. Yeah, and then Upper Deck didn't come out until 89, right, I believe? Okay, so yeah. Um, score believe, started in 88. Right? Yeah, and I, I, I'm always, I've always been a big Score fan. I think they're underrated cards. Uh, I like the texture of the cards. Uh, so yeah, uh, that Score's debut year. And then also for 1988, you also have the debut. That's the debut year of starting lineup figures. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any of mine with me. But I will be posting picks throughout uh, in, in promotion for this episode. I have I have a, a, a ten year later. I have a, a ninety eight Larry Walker that I'm going to be getting to use. <laughs> so, nice. Awesome. Yeah, this is this is a starting lineup for the folks playing at home who have never seen one. Nice. Um. Yeah, man. It was it was it was. I, I was so excited when those 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 figures came out and. Cool. Um, it's just uh, the, it was, the 80s it was a great was such year. an action figure time. You know what I mean? Oh, weren't they? Yeah, like to, to toys as, as kids and boys, and so it was like it was just natural. It was like, oh, why were why why did it take so long to get action figures of sports players? You know I know, I mean? right? Yeah, yeah. I, and they made so freaking many of them yeah. those first yeah. two years. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like close to like two hundred figures for eighty eight and eighty nine, and then. Each successive year, you started getting fewer and fewer. But 88 and 89, man, they loaded up on that shit. So there's almost like 400 figures those first two years? Yeah, I think so. About, yeah, about, yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, dude. I mean, like, and some of the people that got them, you know, were like, like, you know, they maybe only had like one, like, you know, because it would have been like 1987 stats. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, trying to, I'm looking uh, here. I, I found like a, ch- a checklist here. Um, okay. Guys, guys like Brian Downing, uh, Gary Reedus, Shane <laughs> Rawley. Yeah. Um, well, Brian Downing was nice. pretty good, though, dude. Okay. Brian Downing, right, yeah, don't, don't, don't knock down. Um, don't knock down. <laughs> Tom Herr had one. Um, Zane Smith. Ozzy Virgil. Uh, yeah, Devon yeah. White. Nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, Eric Davis, Glenn Davis, Jody Davis. Uh, they had to get a Cubs catcher. Guys, Kim Phelps from Seattle. You guys remember him and Jim yeah. Presley from yeah. Seattle? They yeah. were Seattle. Both those guys had eighty-eight figures. Yeah. yeah, I've got, I've got, I think I've got both of those actually. <laughs> yeah, Saints for completeness. Jack wow. Clark, Jack Clark on the Yankees. Oh yeah. Matt Noakes, yeah. our boy Matt Noakes got one. Yep. Yeah. yeah, Donnie Moore. Chris Chris Brown from San Diego Padres. 
Okay. No recollection of that no. guy. No. Mike uh, Boddicker. Yeah, he was solid. Mike, Mike Dunn from Pittsburgh. You guys remember Mike Dunn? That's D-U-N-N-E. So how many how many MLB players are there like in a given season? Several hundred, right? There's, um, There's 25 guys on each team. And so 25 30, teams 25 at the time? How many, how many teams were there? At the, at, at the time, I think there were like 26 teams. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so uh, our math would tell us then that uh, 26 times 25. So one out of three guys, if you didn't get a figurine, you were... You, you were cast as a as a bottom two thirds player. Yeah, and I mean the hot teams of the time, you know, got a lot more figures. Like you know, eighty eight, like the Mets were were a strong team, so they had a ton of superstars. You know, same thing. You know, the Cubs had quite a few good players then too, and you know, the A's and the Dodgers. So those teams got a lot, whereas like the Expos, you know, they were like, oh, we'll give you Tim Raines. <laughs> I wonder if anybody was hardcore in their collection of starting lineups. And when Pedro Guerrero was traded from the Dodgers to the Cardinals midseason, like they painted a Cardinals uniform on him. <laughs> I, I want to find I the kid so. that did that because somebody did that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Even though they're my favorite team, they were far too generous to the White Sox that year because the White Sox really sucked in the late eighties. And like Gary Reedus got an action figure, Larry Walker, um, not the, yeah. not the, yeah. not the good Larry Walker, right? No, I'm sorry. Um, uh, uh, Greg Walker. I'm sorry. Okay, Greg I was Walker. like, it must be a different Larry Walker. Yeah, Gre- sorry about that. Greg Walker. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, like Fisk and Baines, I get them to getting figures. Yeah. And, and maybe Ozzy Guillen as well. But yeah, Gary Reedus and Greg Walker, eh, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, so 1988, you know, obviously you've got, you know, you've got the uh, two things stand out for me, as they would for most people. First thing I think of when I think of 1988, Kirk Gibson's home run. Right? One of the greatest uh, moments in baseball history. Game one absolutely. of the World Series. Yeah, just the footage has been played so many times, it's kind of tattooed on my brain. Um, that's what I think of if you mention 1988. The second thing I would think of would be 4040. Right, the Kinseiko opens the 4040 Club, yeah. Which no has anyone done it since then? Yes, yes, it has been done three times since then. That's that's a trivia question for you. Um, All right, well, let's let's jump right into that. Then. Okay, okay. So to spell it out for people, though, um, Jose Canseco was the first player to ever hit forty home runs and steal forty bases. Since then, three other players have done it. Go. Oh shit. Okay. Um, Griffey. Uh, Griffey. No. I don't think he's going to steal that many bags. I'm, I'm, um, think think steroids. Think steroids era? Yeah. Uh, so McGuire? No. no. Uh, Juan Gonzalez was never that fast, no. right? No. NL. Uh, uh, okay, think National League. All right. Yeah. Uh, who, who's the godfather here? Probably the greatest athlete of his generation at the time. Uh, oh, Barry Bonds. Thank you. Yeah. Barry Bonds. Yeah, all right. Uh, what's, what's your one? Uh, Barry Bonds 4040? Oh, yep. shit. I knew you were going to ask that. I was just curious. Uh, um, okay. There is that a Wikipedia time, page for it. That gives me time to think about it. Well, I don't want to look and find the answers. Um, um, and uh, Sumi was on the Giants. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so there's one more we got to get, you said? Um, so the, there's four total. Conseco, oh, okay. Bonds, um, 
And Bonds did it in 96 with the Giants. 42 home runs, 40 stolen bases. Uh, the next player did it for the Mariners in 1998. Not Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, Alex Gonzalez. No. Uh, uh, you're close. A Rod. A Rod. There you go. Alex, uh, yeah, Alex no, Rodriguez. I said Gonzalez. <laughs> uh, he went uh, 42 and 46. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, here's your wild card in 2006 for the Washington Nationals. Levi, you should know this. It's your boy. Oh, who? Jason Work? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. What you say? He wasn't on the Nationals yet. Okay. Was, I, know, I, I, know, I know who it is. I know who it is. Washington National also was a cub at one point for several years. I'm gonna probably be like duh when you say it. Oh, you will. he was always you lambasted as overpaid, but he still produced quite regularly. He just had he a also, huge contract. He also played played in infield and outfield too in his career. Hit 46 home runs, stole 41 bases for the 2006 Washington Nationals. I don't know who Alfonso Soriano. Wow, I he was, he was the last member of the 4040 Club. The yeah. Damn. Yeah. Was it yeah. really advertised much when he did it? Because I don't even remember that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I he had other it was priorities, maybe. Center that night or whatever, but <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I don't even. I didn't even know he was part of the Forty Four Club. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, well, Canseco being the first one to do it. I mean, that shit was everywhere. I mean, mm. granted, you know, that's the first one. There were cards devoted but, to it. Yeah, yeah. cards. To, each each of the major card manufacturers devoted a card or two to it. Um, and it just obviously, he was such a star too. You know, I mean, that was uh, that was kind of that was his year. You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 The, the ironic thing about that year is that home runs were way down in 1988 um and, and like by like 25 percent did jose did canseco lead the league in home runs too yeah yeah okay um you know in 87 there were 4400 home runs hit in 88 there were only 3100 um in Damn, contrast last year dropped. last Jesus. year there were 6100 home runs <laughs> oh in 2017 wow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on pace to break that now um, actually, I don't know if they are. I take that back. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you know, him and McGuire bashing these home runs uh, in a year where home runs were down. And '88 was, or the '80s were the only decade where no player hit 50, uh, if I recall correctly. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, so that was the year the Orioles started 0 and 21. Um, wow, 0 and 21. This is the worst start ever, right? Yeah, or, yeah. I'd assume. Yeah, um, yeah. The cool thing about that was that when they they broke the streak in Comiskey, Gabe, sorry, against the White Sox, they finally won their Go first figure. game. And then they went home. Uh, they returned home to Baltimore. For, in their next game, 50,000 people showed up, which is pretty cool wow. if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, and yeah. even uh, Morgana came out and kissed Cal Ripken at home plate. Uh, uh, I mean, that, that would have been in Ripken's prime, you know, 88. Um, yeah. yeah. Trying to think who else they had. I, I think Glenn Davis was still on Houston then. They didn't have. I don't much. know. They didn't have. Obviously, not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, they they still finished. I think I think they only finished uh, with fifty four wins. Um, they had Eddie Murray that year, I guess. 
Uh, Frank Robinson relieved Cal Ripken Sr. Cal Ripken Sr. was relieved of his managerial duties after just starting like 0-6. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, they pulled the trigger pretty quickly. Um, but Fred Lynn was on that team. Um, okay. An old, old Fred I was going to say, like, wow. Yeah. yeah, Mike Boddicker pitched on that team. Um, otherwise, yeah, they were pretty bad. Uh, so in June was the draft and I've, I've got some quizzes for you for the, for the, okay. uh, for the okay. June draft. All right. So pop quiz, hot shots, um, yes. Gabe, the 1988 draft's first round included two players that would go on to have significant success for the White Sox. Third baseman, Robin, Robin Ventura was one, mm-hmm. but can you name the other pick who was chosen by the Brewers, but never signed only, only to be picked by the White Sox in the first round two years later? So 1990, the White Sox picked him up. Yeah, even though he was selected in the 88 draft as well in the first round. I'll go with Alex Fernandez. Very maybe. good. Wow. Nice, nice. And well I, I didn't remember that one from well looking done. Well yeah, done. From, so yeah. All right, to, cool. to, to piggyback on that, um, while Ventura went on to have an all-star career uh, and hit 294 home runs for the White Sox, four players from uh, the 1988 draft hit more home runs in their career. Tino Martinez, Luis Gonzalez, Jim Edmonds, and this Hall of Fame catcher who was drafted in the 62nd round of the 1988 draft. And it would 62. hit 427 God. home runs. God, the baseball draft has 62 rounds. Ridiculous. Um, he was drafted as a favor to the manager because he was related or something. Oh, um, Los Angeles Dodgers. Favorite. Who would go on to play for the Florida Marlins and oh, Piazza. Uh, Mike Piazza hit 427 yeah. home runs, hit 62nd round. Yes. Yes. Also, like I, you're told me 88, um, it, just some of those guys, I, I didn't know they went, like I, I didn't know Jim Edmonds went back that far. Right. I know. You know? Yeah. And Luis Gonzalez. Yeah. 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 Levi, I've got one for you. The Atlanta Braves. Yeah drafted this player in the fourth round of the 1988 draft only to trade him to the Cubs three years later for Damon Barry Hill. This is obscure, but he's a notable and, and player. What year, what year did he get traded to the Cubs? Three know? years later, uh, so 1991. Okay. He was traded with um, Yorkies Perez to the Cubs for Damon Barry Hill and Mike Bilecki. He's a very um, colorful. George Bell? No, nope, uh, a very colorful uh, pitcher, relief pitcher. Um, very quirky, and like in his personality or his delivery. In his personality. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, he. I was going to say Mitch Webster, but we got him from like the Phillies, I think, didn't we? Um, he was um, notable for wanting to brush his teeth in between innings. Uh, I used to know this. Now that you say that, uh, he was the, considered the most superstitious baseball player in the game. Cubs got him in '91. You yeah, said, yeah, traded for Damon Barry Hill. You you want it? Oh, I'll give it to you. Who is it? Turk Wendell. Turk Wendell. Turk Wendell. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember his card? Them. His card had a photo of him on the back brushing, back his, brushing teeth. his teeth. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think it was like a Fleer card from 91 or 92, 92 Fleer, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so last one. Um, this future USC, University of South Carolina, South California, uh, Southern California, and NFL quarterback Flameout was taken by the California Angels in the 43rd round as a high school pitcher, but never signed. I know, I know who this is. Levi, do you know? No, I don't. Tom Marinovich. Very good. 
Thank you. Rodney Rodney Pete, actually, who who was the starter at USC that year, was also selected in that draft. He played for the Lions. Went on to play for for the Lions, yeah. And his his wife also has a career in... Holly Pete, yeah, 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 right. Now, um, I was thinking of that, Levi. You know, Jonathan told me, just mentioned that the Cubs traded Danny Berryhill in 91. Did he, he must have fizzled out pretty quickly, right? I mean, because... Yeah, yeah. He I, I remember they... they long. Okay. And, we were, and he was kind of like touted as going to be like, oh, he's going to be a great hitting and fielding catcher. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, he got a, he got a starting lineup. He got two of them. Right. Right. 89 and 90, he got starting lineups. Because, um, yeah... Yeah, he, he would have been the catcher when we went to the playoffs. Against the Giants, yeah. Right. Because, yeah, they, I figure they had a lot riding on him, but uh, it, it must not – I mean, same thing with Walton, you know. I mean, it, it – it, He didn't last long with No, him. no. I mean, the, the Cubs – the production that, stopped, it was like, you're gone. On that 89 team, you know, they had that, that young core of, of Dwight Smith, Walton, and Barry Hill, and, and all those guys, unfortunately, not much really came of any of them. Yeah, so – Levi, speaking of the Cubs, uh, August 9th, you had the first Wrigley night game. Did you uh, stay up to watch? Okay, I can remember this being like a a heated topic among the Cub fans of Chatham, Illinois. Like there were people that were like pro lights or people were like, oh, don't change (laughs) it. But, you know, tradition, day games, you know, Wrigley doesn't need lights, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I just... I can remember watching it, and then I had forgotten until I, you know, later years, I had gotten, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I got a DVD set. It's like five DVDs of the greatest moments of Cubs history, and that game's on there, and it was a rainout in the fourth inning. I had forgotten when I was a little kid that it was a rainout till I got those DVDs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really cool to see um, – Greg Maddox and some of the relief pitchers, after they put the tarps on the field, they used them like slip and slides and like slid on them. And Don Zimmer fined them like 500 bucks a piece. Oh, Zim. Oh, no, Popeye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's um, uh, there's a nice little bit in the 1988 year in review uh, on YouTube uh, with Mel Allen. And uh, they, they, they give it a uh, kind of a, a biblical theme. The reporting yes, of that is yeah. yeah, it's very dramatic. Yeah, it's fun. And, and those are just great for anybody. Those those year reviews. They're based kind of on the weekend review baseball. You know, this weekend baseball uh-huh. twib. Yeah, it's like an hour long. It's glorious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good um, stuff. It was in that too. I learned that this was the year of the near no no um, in 1988. While Br- Tom Browning pitched a perfect game though. But he had a no-hit bid broken up early in the year. There were seven no-hitters broken up in the ninth inning uh, in 1988. Two by Dave Steeb. Crazy. That sucks. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine your numbers if you could add two no-hitters to them? (laughs) Oh, no kidding. You know, like your your Hall of Fame resume? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Hershiser, Oral Hershiser, pitcher for the uh, Dodgers, didn't uh, pitch any no-hitters, but he did have his uh, scoreless streak, 58-inning scoreless streak, um, that he was only able to set because um, in the last regular season start, it went 10 innings, and it was scoreless after 10, and he had to pitch a 10th inning to get that 58th inning uh, to break the record, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we mentioned the the A's won. The A's had the Bash Brothers that year. They won 104 games, 
but they didn't have home field advantage in either the ALCS or the World Series because at that point they were alternating um, uh, 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 home field uh, between the divisions and the leagues. And so that year the AL East had home field advantage and the National League had home field advantage just because it alternated. Uh, And it wasn't until the All-Star game that... uh, after the, the you know the infamous All Star game where it counts you know when the and, uh-huh. uh, they did all that BS and then after that when they finally rescinded that they just for the first time they implemented this oh whoever has the best record gets home field advantage which it seems so obvious but they didn't figure it out until a few years ago um, especially in this year of interleague play where everybody kind of plays everybody so yeah um, but yeah the ALCS. Um, uh, the A's uh, uh, swept the Red Sox uh, in spite of not having home field advantage. So the first two games were played at Fenway. Um, in the NLCS, uh, the Dodgers and Mets went seven games. and uh, But, of course, all of that was overshadowed by uh, the World Series and the Game 1 dramatic walk-off home run um, uh, by Kirk Gibson where the the term was popularized walk-off home run because it was given up by the man that coined the term Dennis Eckersley. Eckersley was known to have kind of his own vocabulary and he said he had a lot of phrases that nobody really understood what they meant except him and one of them was walk-off home run because that's what the team and the pitcher does when you give up a home run to the other team to win the game is you walk off the field head home Uh, run and uh, and yeah it was Eckersley uh, the pitcher who gave up the home run who came up with the term and uh, after that, it was uh, always used. And we just take it for granted now. Oh, yeah, good old Eck. Yep. yep. Um, and so, of course, the Dodgers would go on to win that uh, series in five games um, over the A's. Yeah, that, that moment is so iconic. I think a lot of people think it was like, you know, game, game seven, seven, bottom of yeah, the night. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, it was the first game. But yeah, yeah it kind of set the tone. It's the got, yeah, it's got a game seven feel to it. But. Uh... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yep, it's definitely one of my earliest baseball memories. uh, Yeah, man, 1988 was a great year, and, you know, it's hard for us to touch everything in one of these episodes. It was was a really good year. Yeah, everybody out there, listeners, uh, tell us what we missed. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, Please do. Um, Well, I want to remind everybody, um, you can... Listen to all episodes of Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu at rockchu.com. All 93 of them. Wow. Um, so, yeah, check those out. You can dig into our archives as well. Uh, a lot of fun, timeless topics about baseball and music. And then also I want to remind everybody you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rockinchu. That's in as in Matt Noakes is my, one of my favorite catchers. Um, and also, uh, I want to remind everybody as well to rate us on iTunes. That would help us out a lot. Uh, you know, or any of the podcasting apps where you can rate us, uh, please give us a shout out and, uh, and let us know how we're doing. Uh, until next time, we will see everybody in episode 94. Uh, have a great month. Take care. Peace.